0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And this is a very special and interesting episode that we've wanted to put out for a long time. Now, as we talk about, um, we also run something called The Good Book Club, which is a virtual book club for post and nuanced Mormons, where we read just a wide spectrum of books, kind of with the idea that now we know what we don't believe, let's try to figure out what we do believe through reading. And we're headed into our fourth year with this. It's absolutely amazing. But every once in a while, we will have a discussion of a book that I feel a wider audience needs to look at. And so we will put this over on Mormonish, and that's what we've done with this one. This book is called Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview by D. Michael Quinn. Now, we discussed this book last October, so when you watch the episode, you'll notice that we're sort of wearing some costumes. <laughs> we tried to make it fun. Um we tried to do some special interesting things and also still be informative. But why don't you tell us Landon a little bit about why this book Early Mormonism and the Magic World View was just pivotal when it came on the scene and, and is so relevant today too.
1: Yeah, it absolutely is because it talks about the folk magic that uh, Joseph Smith practiced uh, you know, prior to establishing the church and how that permeated into the church. And you can see it all throughout the church. You can see this folk magic and how it uh, affected a lot of the doctrines of the church. So uh, we spend a lot of time going through the different things. If you've, if you've read D. Michael Quinn, it is well-researched, but it also can be somewhat dry. So we tried to
0: spruce it up. <laughs> daunting.
1: Da- it is daunting. It is a tough It's
0: daunting. A tough I mean, reading. look at this thing.
1: Yeah. So we tried to take it and consolidate it and make it fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, bring in a lot of slides, bring in a lot of pictures of the different things that he's talking about. And we just tried to, we really had fun doing this episode. It was one of the funnest episodes we've done, uh, just putting it together because it's really fascinating to see the folk magic and, and how it impacted us. Something that nobody knows about really. Seems like
0: nobody knows about it. that's exactly right. And I will say that we had different book club members that kind of weighed in and did sections. We kind of edited it for length, so we won't see everybody that presented, but we think that we covered the main point. So if you're tired of hearing people talk about early Mormonism and the magic worldview and you haven't read it and you feel at a disadvantage. This is the video for you because we are going to cover it and you will understand what's going on and why this is so important to the early Mormon church and the foundational story of the church. Don't you agree, Landon?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yep, it's 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 wild. Uh, when you think Mormonism can't get any weirder, you start studying this stuff. <laughs>
0: that is true. That's our tagline. It's so weird, you won't believe it, right? But but it's amazing. So all right, we hope that you enjoy the episode and we'll see you again later for Mormonish. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to an amazing Halloween edition of The Good Book Club, where we will be discussing D. Michael Quinn's amazing book early Mormonism and the magical worldview. We've had kind of an interesting morning with people crashing our Zoom party. So we think we finally got that under control. Because of that, we won't be doing any business um, talking about upcoming events, but you can find all that information on Facebook or um, email, reach out to me. We'll get that information out to you. So without any further ado, I hope, (laughs) here we go. So we are going to be talking about, as I said, early Mormonism and the magical worldview, and we have split it into originally three parts. And then I realized that one of the really important things about this book is why in the world was it even written? I mean, that's something you don't ever necessarily ask yourself when you start to read. Why did this author write this book? But the story of how this book came out is as exciting as the book itself. So I'm gonna spend a little bit of time talking about the origins of the book and then go into some of the early magic, um, biblical and American, early American. And then we'll move on to Landon with Joseph Smith and the magical world View, Magic Views. And then Linda will, Melinda will finish up with Persistence and Decline of Magic. So that's kind of how it's gonna to roll today. So let's get started with our slides which I hope are intact, whoever hacked us actually uh, stole some of our beginning slides. This couldn't get any crazier. So we're gonna start with part one. And part one is our author and why this book was written, which is absolutely a fascinating story. So our author is D. Michael Quinn. He was born in California in 1944. He grew up in Pasadena. Um, He was in school. He thought he would be a doctor. And so he was in medical school. He was um, a night nurse. He was seeing patients. And he just kind of became overloaded. And he actually... um, Blunked out of medical school and decided, well, next best thing, I'll become a historian, (laughs) which makes perfect sense, but we're so glad that he did. (laughs) So he served a mission. He's a faithful Latter-day Saint. He served a mission in 1963 in England. He graduated from BYU in English literature. He actually served in Vietnam for three years and he was in military intelligence, which makes sense. His attention to detail, which I'm sure if any of you read the book, the the copious amounts of footnotes that he has, um, I think that may have had to do something with his ability to investigate and um, have sources. He went to graduate school at the University of Utah and he eventually got his PhD from Yale. So let's move to the next slide. He is known as one of the notorious September 6th. If you're not familiar with the September 6th, that's another rabbit hole that you could jump down at another time. This is a group of scholars and intellectuals, many of them professors or adjunct professors at BYU who were excommunicated right around the same time in September of 1993. And I was on campus at that time at BYU and it was was a very charged situation. Um, They were excommunicated for... Oh, uh, talking about mother in heaven, talking about the church power hierarchy, talking about the Davidic um, stranger. And in Michael Quinn's case, talking about um, Mormonism and magic. So that's an interesting thing to look into if you guys want more information. But he was one of the September 6th. So. In the 70s, uh, when Michael Quinn was studying and getting his PhD and at the University of Utah, nobody knew very much about the origins of early Mormonism and its connection to magic. It just wasn't really on the radar, and in fact, the involvement of people throughout history in magic pursuits really wasn't on anybody's radar. If you wrote a biography, say, of Sir Isaac Newton, you didn't mention that half of his life and half of his library was devoted to astronomy and the occult. It was just something that didn't register with historians, and they just looked past it as maybe a quirk, a glitch. So as far as the church is concerned, in 1974, There was a very famous speech given in Nauvoo at the Mormon History Association. This was given by Reed Durham, who is an institute director and historian for the church. And I call it the speech that opened Pan's door's box, because on a thundery day in Nauvoo at this conference, he dared to give a presentation about Joseph Smith's Jupiter talisman that he wore even when he was martyred. When he he was martyred, he was wearing this, had this in his pocket. And um, the Masonic connections to the church. Well, this just like wildfire went crazy. Nobody had heard anything about this. This is one of the first times that the common person had Sort and, and historians and people that um, study church history had kind of got on the radar that there was something about magic in early church history. And in fact, it was so disturbing at um, Nauvoo, the Nauvoo site, they had a weather vane um, that had sonic symbols on it. As soon as he gave a speech, they took it down because they realized, oh, no, there's something going on here. So anyway, this this sent shockwaves uh, through the intellectual community. And uh, Michael Quinn heard about it didn't think too much about it. It was sort of interesting. He at the time was working for Leonard Arrington, who was a church historian. And Arrington was angry because he thought, oh no, this kind of talk is gonna get all the archives closed. We're never gonna be able to do any more research um, because now perhaps the people that did know a little bit about these magical origins would be concerned that more people would find out. So this was an absolutely pivotal speech at the time. So uh, the next thing that kind of happened is uh, Michael Quinn had written a thesis paper, and we can go to our next slide, on the patriarch, the role of the patriarch. There used to be one central patriarch in the church, and it was kind of a power struggle between the patriarch and the Quorum of the the Twelve, because the patriarch actually is known as a prophet, seer, and revelator, Um, And that didn't sit well with the other prophet, seers, and revelators. So there'd always been this tension. So in 1977, um, Eldritch Smith, a direct descendant of Hiram Smith, which is what it took to be a patriarch at the time, he had to be a direct descendant, um, invited Michael Quinn to his home with the hopes that he would be able to collaborate on a book that would show everybody the true role of the patriarch, which was very important. And like I said, the power struggle, he was trying to Make sure everybody knew how important that role was. So, as they sat there talking, uh, Michael Quinn said, um, Patriarch Smith said, Hey, would you like to see some artifacts from our family? Because he's a direct descendant of Hiram Smith. And Quinn said, Of course, you know, he's a a historian. This sounds amazing. So, he brought out, if you look at the slide, um, the box that supposedly the golden plates had been in. And a lot of these are now on display at the church museum. Um, but back then they were in a private collection. They were with the Smith family. So Quinn was like, oh, that's amazing. And then he he said that, that Patriarch Smith would leave the living room, go to a bedroom, bring out these things for Quinn to see. So then he brought out the bloody clothes that Hiram was murdered in. So very disturbing, but they actually have them. They're bullet ridden, they're covered with blood. They ha- He looked at the martyrdom clothes. He found that very interesting. Then he brought out a leather pouch You can kind of see that there in the center full of parchments with all kinds of uh circles and symbols latin looked like some egyptian writing all kinds of little drawings and he said well these are the magical parchments that were passed down in the smith family that joseph wore and michael quinn said i went oh like it didn't register it it didn't register at all he just moved on, didn't give it another thought. He said, oh, okay, do you have any journals? And so of course then uh, Eldred Smith a little disappointed and he just pulled out the journals and they worked through the journals the rest of the night. He also was able to show him a pair of garments that was originally worn by Hiram Smith. So when Michael Quinn went home, he said he wrote in his own journal, oh, had a wonderful evening with Eldred Smith, did not even mention The fact that he had seen these parchments it it was just so inconsequential or he didn't have any way to really understand what that was so again magic not known not recognized even by historians until i bet you all know what happens next right absolutely mark hoffman has entered the chat and bruce let's go ahead and let him in (laughs) okay this is funny because i you know, I'd like to reach out to people. I actually wrote Mark Halfman a letter. (laughs) I sent it to the Gunnison Correction Facility and I just wanted to ask him about it because if you read that salamander letter that came out in 85 or 84, um, he knew more than 99.9% of the church historians and a lot of the people in the Quorum of the 12 about the origins of early Mormonism and magic. So for those of you that may not know, Mark Hoffman was an extremely skilled forger who started putting, finding church documents that were very pivotal, and also some early American documents. I mean, the things that he found were just incredible. That should have tipped people off, that no one is that lucky to find this many things. But the letter that most people know that caused so much interest in magic was called the Salamander Letter, and it was a letter that was written supposedly from um, Martin Harris to W.W. W. W. Phelps, describing Joseph Smith, telling him who this Joseph Smith person is. And he mentions seer stones. He mentions treasure digging. He talks about um, going to get the golden plates and in the box, there's a white salamander that suddenly becomes a man and starts attacking Joseph Smith. And that's actually based on a true story that we'll talk about later. So suddenly magic is on the horizon for everybody in the church. And Mark tried to sell it two people in the church. He tried to sell it to Gerald and Sandra Tanner. That's one of my favorite stories. And Gerald looked at it. He goes, no, he instantly knew that, that there's no way this was right. It was too similar to some other previous writings. And I love that about the Tanner's because obviously having this be authentic would be, you know, one for their team, right? But they didn't. They had too much integrity, and they said, no, we're not going to buy this. This is actually a forgery, and they actually tried to warn church officials. So eventually, Steve Christensen, um, the son of Mr. Mack, if you're familiar with Mr. Mack's clothing, um, very well-to-do Mormon, he purchased the letter. I'm sure the church had him do it, and then he donated it to the church, and that's why you see that picture there up at the top um, of the prophet, and many of the apostles gathered around with Mark Hoffman, and they're looking at this amazing letter but then of course it's a problem what the heck is a salamander what does this have to do with early mormonism and so oaks kind of went on the offensive and he went out and he would give addresses and say i think the white salamander is moroni you know things like that but the bottom line is magic and the origins of early mormonism are now on the radar even on a national scale this made the national news everywhere So let's go to the next slide. Um, So a lot of people, uh, Michael Quinn said they were in a faith crisis. People in his ward are coming up to him and asking him, what is this? What is this magic? What is this church? What do you know about this? And Michael Quinn is then sort of thinking, oh, that parchment, oh, that Reed Durham talk. He started to be curious too. And so he went to his um, scholarly friends who worked for the church and he said, hey, everybody's asking about this. You guys are working on something, right? you guys are putting together something so that we can help people who are confused by this. And they said, oh yes, oh yes, we're working on something. And he said, well, it's gonna come out soon, right? Because people are really concerned and they're being asked about this, they're asking me about this. And the church historian said, oh no, no, there's so many sources to get through, it's gonna be years before anything comes out. And so Michael Quinn said, well, can I see your sources? And they said, oh no, no, you can't see those. And so Michael Quinn said, okay, all right. And so he decided that he needed to look into this and start studying, researching, and put out something on his own. And so right about that time, um, Mark Hoffman, it was discovered that everything was a fraud. You have the bombings. Um, He was sent to prison, but at the Gennison Correctional Facility. (laughs) And Quinn is now immersed in studying just early magic in America, early magic in Christianity. And luckily, there were other sources other places um, that this is sort of finally on everybody's radar and they're starting to look into this very important element of our history so he gave a presentation at sunstone where he started to talk about magic and so he's on the radar of the church of somebody that's talking about magic and at this time he's working at byu So of course that's a little dicey, right? He's a history professor and he's a very beloved teacher. He's voted favorite teacher of the year, I think several times. In 1987, um, his book, I can show you guys the first edition. The very first edition, there it is. If we can go to the next slide, we'll talk about that. So the first edition, 1987, it's published by Signature Book. It's not as all as long as the edition probably most of you guys had. Um, and the footnotes in it were incorporated into the text. You probably can't see that, so we don't have that wonderful final 300 pages (laughs) where he put all of his his footnotes. So in between the time of the first edition and the second edition, a lot happened for Michael Quinn. Um, For one, he was called an apostate, a heretic, an antichrist. And this was by other professors at BYU. I mean, it became very, very difficult. Um, It was just information nobody had any way to wrap their brain around. They just couldn't believe they were hearing this about the early origins of the church. Um, He did not publish another edition right away because he wanted to make some changes. He wanted to tweak some things. He was learning new information even after the first publication. So there was a series of a decade there where uh, it was very valuable. If you had one of these books, you might've paid hundreds of dollars for it because it was not in print again. So between the first and second edition, he left BYU because the pressures just became too intense. And he really, unfortunately, was never able to find another position where he would be able to get tenure. He did little things here and there, still doing research, but everywhere where his particular skill set might be valuable, another church university or someplace that had Mormon studies, they were too connected to wealthy Mormon donors who said, I don't want anything to do with Michael Quinn. So just simply because of these things that he brought to light. So he really sort of struggled in that way for the rest of his life. Um, He then was excommunicated as part of the September 6th in 1993. And at that point, he's like, gloves are off I can say whatever I want to say so the first book if you read the first edition was a little more faithful it was a little more apologetic by the time we get to our second edition the one that you guys probably all have um there's a lot of things in it where he takes on his critics. he addresses some of the things that the critics of the day were saying and like I said the gloves were off um So he addresses his critics, he puts the end notes at the end of the book. He includes new information that he's learned um, within the last decade. And he also, um, sorry, I can't read that, fixed any errors or anything that was in the first edition. So it's interesting uh, to read the difference between the first and the second, because it definitely portrays the journey of a man who's gone through a lot since it was published. So let's go to our next slide. So that's kind of the story of how the book came to be, which I found absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And it's really sad because he was absolutely a favorite professor at BYU, and a lot of his students came to him and said, you know, I I can't be a history major anymore because I'm a faithful member of the church, and I can see where those two absolutely it's a crossroads. And so people ended up not being history majors because of that. So, and I think he always felt sort of bad about that. So let's move on to our next thing, which is um, early Christianity. And thank you. I know I'm like, I know I have it somewhere in my brain, Uh, biblical and early American magic. Okay. So, oops, sorry. Oh, somebody was texting me. Sorry. Apologize about that. Okay. So the question is, and this is the big burning question, which did come first? Religion or magic? And you see here, I have the picture of the amazing um, Dumbledore, of course, of Hogwarts, and I have the high priest of Israel, which came first, religion or magic? Well, I think we're going to find that that's almost an impossible question to answer, and they're absolutely linked in so many ways that there's no way to separate it. Let's go to our next slide. So, um, Cloud Levi Strauss, was a French anthropologist who sat around in his blue jeans all day. No, I'm kidding, but that name just makes me laugh. Um, He is not in relation to actual Levi Strauss, but he was a French anthropologist who um, wrote wrote a lot of information about this topic, and one of my favorite quotes of him, and this was in the book, is, there is no religion without magic any more than there is magic without a trace of religion. Again, just that interweaving, it's almost impossible to separate, and we're going to see this as we start talking about uh, the Bible and early America. So um, this is another good quote from Daniel Lawrence O'Keefe. He says, It is because the interactions of magic and religion are so complicated and paradoxical that there has been such confusion as to which preceded which, magic, which which preceded which, magic or religion, (laughs) and even as to which is which. First, there has been outright disagreement as to whether a particular phenomenon can be classified as magic or religion, and we're gonna talk about that in a minute. Is it magical or is it um, a spiritual manifestation? And second, when even the investigators agree on which is which, magic and religion overlap so conspicuously and beg, borrow, and steal from each other so outrageously that there is disagreement about priority. So basically, it's a hot mess. (laughs) All right, let's go to our next slide. Perfect, so we're gonna talk about ancient Judaism and Christianity and the origins of magic there go ahead to our next slide. So ancient Judaism emerged from an environment full of pagan magic and henotheistic worldview where you accepted the idea that there are many gods and they have varying levels of power in influence and influence in your life every single day. That was just, that was just your worldview. And both Jewish and Christian lore have deep, deep connections to the occult to demonologies, angelologies, incantations, amulets, talismans, spells, charms, exorcism, rites, glossolalia, we're going to talk about some of these. One interesting thing I learned is the difference between an amulet and a talisman. I didn't know this until I read this book. So a talisman is something that you create to be a lucky charm. And for example, the Jupiter talisman that Joseph wore an amulet is something that you find that you attribute magical powers to, I guess, maybe a four leaf clover, um, a seer stone, right? Something that's natural that you found. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I never, never heard that before. So let's really start talking about it. This this is my another one of my favorite statements. We practice religion, they practice magic. So I went through the scriptures and I pulled out everything I could find that looked magical or sounded magical. And if you kind of look at all these different things, it could go either way, you know, is it conjuring or is it feeling the spirit, you know, is it sorcery or is it a miracle of Jesus? There's just two ways to look at almost every single thing that's mentioned um, in the early scripture, but we practice religion and they practice magic. I just think that's great. And that really is the theme. So let's talk about some of the, some of the crossovers, some of the things that, that were important to both the magical world, and religion. So what's in a name? Um, the name of God in the Old Testament, uh, Michael Quinn tells us, is translated from the Hebrew consonants. And power in a name um, is is something that goes back anciently as far as magic. Um, things that, uh, it's a powerful belief. Um, Egyptian priests, um, Hebrew priests, you can't utter these names. Harry Potter, right? He who shall not be named. So I don't even know if I should pronounce these names because I feel like something might happen. But these are the different ways that you would say God. And you're not supposed to say them because there's power in a name and something can happen. So this is a similarity between the magical world and Christianity where they, they maintain that concept that there's power in a name. You can use it to invoke things. You can call on God or don't say it because something bad's gonna happen. So it's extremely similar. Again, we're practicing religion, you are practicing magic. Let's go to the next thing. Okay, another interesting story um, in, in the early scriptures is the story of Jacob and the rod so Jacob of course was trying to marry Rebecca ended up marrying being tricked into marrying Leah married Rebecca finally and was going to leave and have his own household so he said to Laban their father why I'd like to take some of your flock to set up my household and he said that's fine you can have the spotted flock well there weren't very many uh, sheep and goats that were spotted so uh Jacob took a rod, I know rods are so prevalent through all this, and he laid it down in front of the sheep and goats. And sure enough, pretty soon they started having offspring that were spotted until pretty soon most of the flock was spotted. And he was able to walk away with with a a good uh, number of the herd. Now I've read apologetics about this. I never knew there were Christian apologetics. I mean, to the extent that I looked into them, but they're there. So there's this thought that There's an enzyme missing in the goats and sheep. If they had it, they would be producing spotted ones. The rod, something about the um, plant, the value of it. If they eat the rod, they're going to get the enzyme. Anyway, they explained it all. But again, we practice religion. You practice magic. He laid the rod in front of the sheep and they became spotted and he took them. So absolutely fascinating, these parallels. Let's go on to the next one. So another great story is the story of the silver cup, Joseph's cup. We all know that story. He's sold into Egypt. He rises to the top. He's a wise, wonderful man. His brothers come to visit. Um, They don't recognize him. And he wants to make sure they're going to go home and bring back a little brother. So he hides his special cup in the bag. Well, what they don't explain, and what most, it's certainly not in Come Follow Me, is that this is a cup with which he practiced hydromancy, which is when you fill it with water and you look into it and you can see the future and, and that basically gave him his wisdom. So again, a lot of these things in the Bible, if you know what you're looking for and you read carefully in the early structure, in the early scriptures, it's extremely magical and it has origins in the occult, absolutely. So I thought that was I hadn't heard that story either. I thought that was interesting. Um, let's go to the next one. Okay, this is one of my absolute favorite ones, and I even have an awesome uh, visual participation element to this one. So the Urim and Thummim, when you're raised LDS, of course you know that these are the wonderful sacred stones with which everything was translated. Well, this is not what they were (laughs) in ancient times. There's a reason I called it roll the dice, casting lots and taking the urine and thumb them to Vegas. These actually, I would consider them more like dice. So if we can share our screen for a minute, Bruce, uh, safely, right? We have high priest uh, Doubting Tomas with us. How are you, high priest Doubting Tomas?
1: Why... I'm feeling a little blue today.
0: (laughs) I'm liking your, yeah, that's really cool. So basically, the high priest, priest, as you can see in the slide, and then Tom is wearing um, a representation. This is called an ephod, um, the part, the golden part. So it's basically a pouch with jewels that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, on his shoulder um, are the Urim and the Thummim. In those little pouches on his shoulder so somebody would come to the priest and he would say oh great high priest doubting tomoth can you tell me if we'll ever be able to zoom safely again in our book club we need to know the priest would take the urim and thumb exactly ah, out of the pouch he would put them into that's right there and show them the markings. so these are actually what what no show him the oh you can't be dropping the urim and thumb <laughs> Okay. So I replicated the actual, there you go. The problem is I don't know which one says yes and which one says no. So I don't know if this demonstration will work, but the priest would put those into his pocket, put it in your pocket, in the, in your pouch. That's right. So we asked the question, Oh, hi priest. Will we ever be able to zoom safely again so that everybody can feel secure? That's right. Shakes it up a little bit. There you go. Reaches in and pulls out the answer, which is, um, I'm hoping that says yes. That's what I hope. So, you know, it all has to do with divination. Casting answer out. hazy. Try <laughs> again. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Turn it over and pull the other one out. There you go. Somebody knows. Anyway, we're hoping. I hope that wasn't a it. Yeah. It's basically like a magic eight ball. There you go. It's perfect. So, you know, when they described the Urim and Thummim, the way that Joseph Smith used it, that. That really was not what the urine and Thummim really was all about. And it's casting lots, uh, which you hear about all the time in the scriptures, and divination, you're looking into the into the future. So that is the true story of the urine and Thummim. Again, all these things we're just touching on for the sake of time. And any one of these you could delve into and spend weeks researching. So another thing that was common, and thank you, High Priest Tomas. Yes, thank you so much. Um, the other thing that was really common, of course, was the uh, talking about snakes. Snakes were sacred. We have biblical snakes. We have the Garden of Eden. We have Moses throwing down his staff and becoming a snake that eats the other snakes. And we have Moses saying, look at my my snake staff and you will be healed. In fact, today, what is the medical symbol? It's a snake. That's right. Some things carry over. So again, it's magic when those uh, court magicians are doing it in Moses's time, right? That's just magic. But when Moses does it. It's religion. So it really is in the eye of the beholder on that one. All right, let's go to the next one. I'm trying to move pretty quickly here. Um, Okay, so zombies in the Bible, right? It's a dead man party. This was really interesting to look into. Let me see if I can grab my notes right here. So there are many cases in early Christianity of people being raised from the dead. And I think because that's the ultimate miracle, right? I mean, death was a huge part, much more than than it is of our lives now. So there are many situations where people were raised from the dead. So we have Elijah and the widow's son who is dead. And he goes to the son's room and he lays himself on top of the dead boy, and he does that three times, and after he's done that, the boy comes to life, so again, this is a religious miracle, this has nothing to do with the occult, right, (laughs) so another situation, this time we've got Elisha, right, same thing, always a widow, always a widow's son, dies again, Uh, this time Elisha, he lays himself on the dead body, it says mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand, and then he added a really awesome spiritual um, element, he sneezed seven times, and the boy came back to life, so again, this is a spiritual experience, this is not magic, or is it, Um, there's a case where Elisha's bones were in the ground, and somebody died, they had to bury him very quickly, it was during war, they threw him into Elisha's tomb, he came right back to life, so even touching the bones, the relics, of um a holy man can bring you back to life. And that probably sounds familiar. There's a lot of worship of relics and bones of saints as we go forward. Um another, there's so many widow sons. I really can't even go through all these notes. We have Jerry, then we have Jesus raising different people. We have Jairus's daughter. We have Lazarus. And then, of course, we have Jesus Christ himself rising from the grave, and not only Jesus, but all of the saints that were resurrected at the same time. So, is it magic? No, it's a powerful spiritual experience, but you can see how they were just so interlocked that it's impossible. It just depends on your point of view, your worldview. So I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. So of course I had to do this. I thought this was very interesting. Um, was Jesus a magician, right? Uh, in the scripture, sometimes he's referred to as a magician. So I had to do the Harry Potter te- test and I came up with some similarities that I found between the two of them that I thought were kind of interesting. So they both had a prophesied birth They were born as a special one. They were hunted and had to flee as a baby. They don't know who they are until about 11 or 12. Um, They were friends with the outcasts and the outliers. They had a very close group of followers who always protected them. They possess magical powers, but they only use them for good and very subtly. Um, They have to eventually sacrifice themselves for the whole rest of the world. And they wake up from the dead because of the power of love. And then in their death experience, they are marked, and that mark is how they're recognized. So I just thought that was really interesting. so many similarities. Magic, religion, again, such a great area. So um, Jesus was considered a a magician in a lot of scriptures, and especially in the Gnostic Gospels, and in in some of the earlier writings. So the idea of Jesus the magician is found in Judaism, Gnosticism, Christianity, Orthodoxy, Heterodoxy. Sorry, heterodoxy, paganism, Islam, and Mandeanism, and a lot of the recorded miracles of Jesus mimic the, the ancient magic process practices. And we could go over and over this, but I think you guys probably mostly know what I'm talking about. For example, spittle on the eyes to cure the blind, and uh, reproducing food that was always a big one, and um, let me see what that, some of the other ones. Just basically a water to wine. These were all magician tricks, but they weren't when they were a powerful spiritual experience um, that was created by Jesus. So you may notice these pictures. He looks like he has a wand. I know a lot of people point to that. That actually was considered more of a staff, very short staff. So, but I still love those pictures. I I think that, you know, kind of freaks people out when you say, look, here's Jesus and he's got his little, I have my wand here somewhere. So (laughs) I love it. So anyway, so then Jesus is gone, but the magic lives on, of course, with this little brief brief pit stop over in Mesoamerica. We'll move past that. And now we're going to start talking about, I think our next slide is, yes. So the different practices that existed in the church um, again, and that that harken back to occult or magical eras. So glossolalia, that's power of words. So you have things repeated in a certain way, in a special way, in a special cadence, and you can't deviate from that. You have that, a witch, right? Might say a spell. You have a Pope repeating mass. You have people repeating uh, religious phrases in a religious ceremony, and I know I don't have to make the parallel to where in the LDS church we see glossolalia. and I think Melinda's going to talk a lot about that um, in section four. So again, just the idea that these, these things have always been here, and so like this slide, ooh, 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 is magic, or is it religion? These are all things that existed in the early Christian church once Jesus was gone, and they were considered the religious tradition of the day, the holy relics, the healing by the bones, the worshiping of the bones, talismans, um, astronomy, the crucifix to ward off evil, Kabbalah, the Jewish magical tradition, all these things from the magic tradition now appropriated by early Christianity and called more religious than magic. Um, then everything changed again. The Protestant Reformation, which, believe it or not, was kicked off on Halloween day, 1517. You've got Martin Luther. He's a German priest he's a scholar, he's highly trained, he's also a historian, and he's had it with the Catholic Church and the use of indulgences, which is where, and this will sound so not familiar to you guys, but you have to pay to get into heaven. I know, crazy concept. Um, basically, you know, you have to buy a candle to go and light it in mass. so they were basically charging everybody so much to be able to make it into heaven, and Martin Luther just didn't think that was right, and he also felt that people needed to be more in charge of their own spirituality and so he sent a letter he didn't actually tack something up on a door (laughs) although i mean that's kind of a rumor pretty much debunked but he did send a letter um to one of the popes in charge and said you know what we we call for the end of this and basically schism where a lot of people started uh considering themselves more Protestant, Protestant, and the Catholics kind of fell out of favor. And with them falling out of favor, the way to distance yourself from Catholicism was to distance yourself from all of these practices, which, as we see over here, (laughs) considered the ones that didn't distance themselves, they were considered to be practicing rural folk magic. You've got the sorcerers, the witches, seekers of lost things, treasure divining, uh, magic, palmistry, jugglers. Believe it or not, a juggler is somebody that can make something magical happen, not Well, it could actually be both. But at that same time period, as you're going up into the 1500s and 1600s, you have scholarly pursuits, things that are considered scholarly, alchemy and astrology. And that's like how Michael Quinn talks about um, Sir Isaac Newton, right? Amazing, genius, science, yet half of his library was devoted to alchemy and astrology. And most historians up to maybe like 50 years ago, just kind of looked the other way on that. They didn't understand what an important part this played in the lives of, of all these early people. So it's interesting to see how that kind of lines up. Let's go to our next slide. Okay, so this this was a revelation to me. I did not know this. Um, you always picture early America, right? They're all in church. They're devout. They're outrageously religious. No, not true. Early Americans were religious that they were predominantly unchurched. They practiced a combination of Christianity with folk cures, folk magic, and superstitions. Only 15% of white Americans in the colonial period actually belonged to a church. So what were they doing if they weren't in church? They were practicing their own version of folk magic, and they all owned a Bible, and they had memorized the Bible. So they were basically creating a hybrid of what they considered religion based on their Folk traditions that were passed on and what they read in the Bible. It reminds me kind of how a priest, high priest Tomas went on his mission to Mexico. And he said when he would convert them to Mormonism, they would bring their Catholicism with them. And so they were practicing this mashup, this hybrid of all these different practices. And that is what they called their religion. So uh, this, of course, is a a shout out to those of you that love the Holy Grail. How do you know she is a witch? (laughs) So as people started to become more churched, or as I like to call it, churching up, um, they started to shun the people that were practicing the folk magic. And every once in a while, you would see a clash, usually in a town where there was a lot of social pressures or things were happening, but exactly like the Salem witch trials, where people are starting to gravitate toward formalized churches formal religion, and yet you still have the people that are practicing the folk magic that they've always practiced, and so then there's a clash, and you're a witch, and interestingly, Joseph Smith Sr.'s grandfather was one of the accusers for two women that were actually Um, put to death as being a witch so I thought that was kind of ironic or apropos I don't know so then we have the great the first great awakening and we are just zooming through history here and we've got the mid 1700s and the second great awakening in the the early 1800s and this is basically when religion's starting to go wild religion go wild right you've got charismatic preachers you've got everybody churching up and very common occurrences all the time angelic visitations visits from deity I don't think a lot of LDS people realize how common this was was nothing special about Joseph Smith saying, I've seen a vision, everyone and their dog was was doing it. Let's go to the next slide. Perfect. And there, that's how we come over what's called the the perfect storm of the burned over district. This is the area in upstate New York, where uh, religion got to a fevered pitch. Now it wasn't when Joseph Smith said that he has seen the first vision and that people were persecuting. No, this was later, but it definitely impacted how he presented himself versus more of a magical person or a religious person. So out of this area, as everybody tried to church up, you have the origins of Mormonism, the Shakers, you have the Adventists, you have some other spiritual, more spiritually oriented religions that develop out of this, but it was absolutely folk magic with an extension of religious faith. And the revivals of the day sent many scurrying, to organize religion, which further mixed the occult, folk magic, and religion into a witch's brew. <laughs> so, in the daily paper, you would read read all about it in the New Nauvoo Expos- Expositor. Um Agnes had an angelic vision yesterday. Good for her. Bob had a brush with deity. Right? They talked about successful treasure digging. Um, I'm not sure that ever was a reality, especially for Joseph Smith. But they did promote that, which ad- added to the you know enthusiasm for it. They talked about divining rods. They mentioned seer stones, special gifts of the seer. So this was just common everyday discussion among people. We probably can't picture that today, but that's that's how it was. Let's go to our next slide. So, all right, so now let's get a little bit specific and my section is almost over here. So let's talk about Joseph Smith's parents. So I don't know if you guys have seen actual pictures of Lucy Smith. Most of us are used to seeing the nice painting in the Come Follow Me manual, but here are a couple pictures of Lucy. So a lot of the, the idea that the Smith family practiced magic comes from third-party sources. This, which is why apologists are able to say, oh, you know, this is one from Lucy in her journal. And it sounds to me when I read it um, that she's kind of rebutting what people must have been kind of saying about them because she says, um, I kind of add at the beginning, the idea that we stopped our labor and went at trying to win the faculty of abrac, drawing magic circles or saying to the neglect of all kinds of business, we never during our lives suffered one important interest to swallow up every other obligation. But whilst we worked with our hands, we endeavored to remember the service of and the welfare of our souls. So I, the, I look at this. the important phrase to me is important interest. She's basically saying, Folk magic, circles, faculty of Abrec, this is important to us, but lest you all think we also neglect other things, no. Although I question that because were they ever really farming? Was our farm ever successful? I don't know, but she's definitely telling everybody these two things are important for us, to us. And of course, while we work with our hands, and that means doing the farm work or what you need to do um, to survive, we also endeavor to remember the service and the welfare of our souls. And that phrase means folk magic. That's what they were doing. They were making sure that their souls were right with their incantations, their parchments, their stones. So if you're curious what the faculty of ABRAC is, there's not a lot on it so I was looking at it yesterday and I was like I can't find anything so who knows about this ah radio free Mormon so he and I are acquaintances so I texted him and he actually called me which I thought was really fun and he had me draw out this diagram that's actually in the back of the book and so it's based on of course the word abracadabra which is actually based on an ancient Aramaic phrase which was avada kadabra and those of you that are Harry Potter fans, abracadabra, right? It's the killing curse. Sorry, I hope I didn't hurt anybody. But yeah, that's where abracadabra comes from. So you basically start with the A and you create this cone and you write out the word abracadabra and then you count down seven from the top. Seven is a very special magical number and that's where you hit Abrac. And that's an absolutely powerful word infused with power. And so winning the faculty of ABRAC means um, prosperity, good luck, fortune, Protection, all of that. And people actually used to design this on little um, talismans. They would wear it. So if you want to make yourself one, there it is. That's how you do it. Just write out abracadabra in a cone. So I thought that was interesting. And thank you, RFM, for helping us explain it. So here we have Lucy. I made her a Tinder profile just because I thought we should get to know her. So we have Lucy Mack. She's 44. Um, She's two feet away. I figured she might be hovering around here listening to this. Um, She's looking for religion. She loves mummies, um, searching for buried treasure. And contacting the dead and she is willing to relocate for the right opportunity so these are all of lucy's hobbies that she just routinely practiced a magic circle soothsaying medical arts magic formulas magic rituals magic divination palmistry use of a seer stone astrology egyptian magic and of course as we just discovered winning the faculty of abrac so she was absolutely immersed in folk magic but to her it was religion they were completely linked her bible and her magic So then we're going to talk about Joseph Smith Sr. very quickly. The apple does not fall far from the tree, Joseph Smith Sr. He had a strong belief in witchcraft. He was known as a master rodsman. He had prophetic visions. He, of course, the magical parchment and um, spells. In fact, he once uh, enchanted a gun with a spell so it wouldn't save a turkey. He was a very interesting person. And one of the most interesting things And this will be my last thing I talk about um, that he was involved in. If we can go to our next slide. If you haven't heard about this, this is another rabbit hole. How much wood can a wood scrape scrape? Joseph Smith Sr. and the New Israelites. He belonged to a religious group um, in the early days. And they say, okay, I should say allegedly. There's a lot of evidence that he did. Apologists might say no, but I feel... Anyway, after you hear what I have to say, you make your own decision. Um, Oliver Cowdery's father also supposedly was a member of this group. So, this was run by someone named Nathaniel Wood. He was a Congregationalist, but he was kicked out of that for hearsay and just general bad behavior. So, he started his own group and called themselves the New Israelites. They practiced, and tell me if any of these practices of the New Israelites sound familiar um, spiritual wifery, polygamy, peep stones. Um, treasure digging, dowsing. They're building a temple. They're known as the new Israelites um, because they are directly descended from the lost 10 tribes. They call themselves Israelites. They call everyone else Gentiles. Uh, they don't believe that the Bible was translated correctly because they believe the Catholics have adulterated it. So they come up with their own translations. They also teach that there are seven dispensations to the world. They Their prophet, Nathaniel Wood, is able to speak a special angelic language that only he can read and understand um they're also very focused on becoming perfect in this life because that's the only way that they will be able to become immortal is if they can achieve perfection in this life and they also believe that they weren't just created here on earth they lived in a pre-existence. I know this all sounds very foreign to you. <laughs> One thing that is unusual is that if any woman went to the prophet and said, I feel like I have the devil or I just, I have bad feelings, the cure for that was for her to take off all her clothes and run around naked until she felt better. So that's an interesting practice we might not be so familiar with, although I feel like some of the people that tried to zoom in with us earlier, they might know what that's all about. So <laughs> anyway, um, it's called the Wood Great Group because uh, Nathaniel Wood uh, predicted the apocalypse and all of his followers gathered together there in vermont and the locals got a little nervous they called the militia and they came out there were some shots fired so it was a big scrape so they're known as the wood scrape the most interesting thing to me aside from the fact that joseph smith senior was most likely a part of this and also oliver Caldery's father is that um so these guys all live in vermont the new israelites by 1850 32 Of those people living in vermont now live in utah according to the census so how do you explain that i believe that obviously it was mormon 1.0 that's absolutely what i think it was so anyway look more into that it's very interesting so that pretty much concludes my section and i'm just going to leave you with this before we move to landon into this boiling cauldron of folk magic the occult religious fever and prophecies of greatness joseph smith was born <laughs> thank you and now take it away landon
1: <laughs> thank you rebecca yeah so uh i just wanted to go on and say that uh, uh one clarification i think what you meant was that those people showed up in palmyra not in utah uh the, from the wood Scrape group so no uh, they were clar- actually
0: in utah they were no, in they- utah
1: Oh, they ended up in Utah. They too. were in okay. Utah.
0: They, they and, and they ended Palmyra.
1: up in Palmyra. So that's that's yeah. important. So yeah. um, okay, well let's move on then. Uh, we've got a lot to cover, and there's a lot of this folk magic. This thing, you know, trying to narrow it down into a time frame was was so difficult because there was so much of this in history. Back in 2011, Penn and Teller had a TV show called Foolus, where they'd have a, a magician come on, and that magician would try to he'd do a trick, and then Penn and Teller would try to guess what the what that trick was or how they performed the trick. We're gonna try that today. We're gonna to try to figure out how this trick happened uh, that that uh, that we all are familiar with. So uh, let's start off with what the trick is. Uh, so the trick, pull a $500 billion church out of a hat, and then, this is the important part, make the hat disappear. We gotta make sure nobody knows about the hat. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit about that because I think most of us growing up in the church did not, do, never heard this story. Don't know what it, it, it was even talking about until later when we start getting into our, our faith journeys and, and, and start finding this stuff out. Can you go to the next slide? So, in order to do pull this off, uh, uh, Joseph needed to have a, a magician's toolbox. So, we're going to go over some of the tools that he used uh, and some of the tools of his trade. The first one, and we've talked about it quite a bit, is the divining rod. Uh, the divining rod is. Um, had several names, the divining rod, the virgula divina, Mosaic wand, rod of nature, rod of Aaron, uh, had a lot of different names. It was used by Joseph Smith Sr., Oliver Cowder, Oliver Cowder Sr., Joseph Smith Jr. All of them were uh, experts with the rod. Um, it, they'd use it mainly to find treasure, but you could also ask questions just like the uh, 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 Urim and Thummim, you could ask it yes or no questions, and if it bent, it was yes, and if it didn't bend, it was no. At one point, uh, Oliver Cowdery was interested in, uh, in, in translating the Book of Mormon. And uh, so Joseph asked God and he said, oh yes, you through the power of the divining rod, you can translate. And this came out as DNC section eight. And, and uh, the, the Lord approved of this. He said uh, to, to Oliver in the original, he said the gift of working with the sprout, which is the divining rod. Uh, but it was later changed because that was a little too magical. Uh, They changed it in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now you'll read it as the gift of Aaron. Uh, I don't know how you would translate a book with a stick. Uh, I I don't know, maybe it was stick figures or something that appeared, but uh, that's what they used. Um, The next item is the seer stone. And what would happen is, uh, as we read about, Joseph Smith had uh, several seer stones. Um, You want to go to the next slide? I happen to have gotten a seer stone. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, but he had five seer stones, so these were not uncommon, and just uh, during that time. Uh, he acquired the first one when he was about 14 years old uh, by looking through Sally Chase, who also had a, a, a seer stone. He went and looked through her seer stone to see where he could find his own seer stone. Uh, he acquired the second one in 1820, but the most famous one and the brown one that we see most of the time uh, he that he used to translate the plates in the Book of Mormon, but he also used it to treasure dig. He found that in 1822 while digging a well uh, on Willard Chase's property. Interestingly enough, Willard Chase wanted the stone and Joseph said, well, can I just borrow it? And so Willard Chase allowed him to borrow it and he never gave it back, um, even when <laughs> he asked for it back. So the seer stone was stolen was a stolen stone. Um, in that time, almost everyone, not, not everyone, but lots of people had a seer stone. Uh, Joseph Smith had one, Lucy Smith, W.W. W. Phelps, Sally Chase, Lumen Walters, Hiram Page, lots of people had these seer stones. It was just like Oprah. You get a stone, you get a stone, you get a stone. Everybody had a stone. Um, the same stone that he used for finding treasure, he used to find the plates and the Book of Mormon, which is quite, uh, quite interesting. Um, let's, let's go to the next, uh, let's skip the next slide just for time. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen, uh, Brad, uh, Brad Wilcox has a video and uh, look that up on YouTube where he describes the seer stone and says, oh, it's really not that unusual. It's just like a cell phone. Just like a cell phone is smooth and you can read text on it, you can do that on a seer stone. And just like when a seer stone, when you can't see in a cell phone because it's too bright, you would put it in your hat and you would shade it and so that you can read it. It's not that ridiculous to think of that. And so that's kind of the way they explain this seer stone as if oh, it's common knowledge that anyone can look in a stone and see things and see the future and, and uh, talk with God and translate books. That's that's uh, everyday occurrence. Um, so let's go to the let's go to the next one. Um, the the uh, the dagger. Uh, this is the tool that the Mars dagger that was owned by Joseph Smith uh, Junior or Senior. Sorry, Joseph Smith Senior had this dagger. It's called the Mars dagger, and on it, this is a picture of it. It came from that same collection that uh, Rebecca talked about from the uh, Patriarch. Uh, on it, was the, the words were inscribed Adonai on the blade, which is necessary when you're looking for treasure. Uh, also included on it was the Mars symbol, which was Joseph Smith Sr.'s governing star uh, with uh, Scorpio in between. Th- what he would do with this is he would inscribe out on the dirt, he'd sit and he'd, he'd make circles. And with those circles, they're, they're magical circles. And you can see there on the picture on the left, uh, an example of what they draw out. So. What would happen is the scryer would take his stone, put it in his hat. He'd look, he'd say, oh, there's a treasure over there. He'd guide him to where the treasure was. Then they'd take the magical knife or a sword and they draw these circles. This was to contain this, the, the uh, treasure so the treasure couldn't escape. And then they drew, they'd uh, tap these uh, birch poles in all around it uh, to, to basically make a pen so the, so the treasure couldn't escape. Because obviously when they start digging, uh, the, the, treasure, uh, the treasure would usually have a treasure guardian and the treasure guardian would make it move in the ground. And so by doing this, the treasure couldn't move away from them so that they could get the treasure. Unfortunately, if you broke any of the rules, the treasure got away and, and uh, that's what always happened is they'd get real close and then they'd break a rule and the treasure would get away from them. Um, if you look at the little circle, you'll see off to the sides there, there's some little marks off of each of the birch stakes there. Uh, They just look like little tick marks and different things. We're going to see those in in a few minutes. We're going to see this in several different places as we go forward. Okay, next slide. The next thing uh, was what's called a a grimoire. And uh, these were basically magical texts uh, or a spell book. Uh, They still are around today. The most famous one is Barrett. I was able to, oops, I was able to buy one. Uh, And you can see the magus is still around. Um, We know that Joseph Smith used this because a lot of the symbols that he used and a lot of the things that they did are only found in the Magus, so we know that that was used, but he also used uh, books by Sibley. Um, These books, uh, it was interesting, I started thumbing through it, they include instructions on how to create magical items, like a talisman, how you create one, they have spells and incantations, specifically how do you get treasure or how do you call upon treasure. Uh, also, how to summon or invoke supernatural beings such as angels, spirits, and deities. You want to go to the next one? Okay, the next one is a talisman, uh, and the talisman is this is something that Joseph Smith carried with him. Uh, they often referred to it as a mosaic medallion, a medallion, because nobody really knew what it was um, until until very late when uh, when the guy from uh, that was the institute director. Uh, uh, talked about it in like 1974. The thing with the talisman is it can only be created during an elected time when the planetary force is particularly potent, such as Jupiter's and Sagittarius. And what they are is they're a physical embodiment of the virtue of a particular planet or star that imbues the wear of that virtue. Joseph had a Jupiter talisman because Jupiter was his guiding uh, star. And the intent of it was to produce intelligent energy animated by an angel or an intelligence who rules the celestial article. So the word intelligence is actually a word that was used in magic to describe uh, the the planetary functions. Uh, We read about the intelligence in Abraham, and that's uh, more than likely that that came from this magical worldview. I believe this is really, as I looked at this, I think this thing really worked. Um, If you had it, it, uh, jupiter talisman the power of the ancient magic guaranteed the possessor of its talisman the gain of riches and favors and power and love and peace and to confirm honors and dignities and councils that sounds like what happened to joseph smith but specifically on this uh he has a hebrew table if you see on the the one on the right there uh the hebrew table uh, had incantations that had uh, hebrew numbers letters in them and each hebrew letter has a number associated with it Whichever way you added them up, down, diagonal, it always added up to 34. And if you added them all together, it added up to 136. And you can see 136 is actually on the medallion there. If you look on the right, you see that uh, the cross of Jupiter, the orbit of Jupiter, the sign of Jupiter, uh, that little number that looks like a 24, that is the sign of Jupiter. As we go through, look for that sign. You're gonna see that in several of the other parchments and different things that come on. But the reason I say I think this worked is because if you became proficient at the table of Jupiter, uh, you would be able to get the power of stimulating anyone to offer his love to the possessor of the talisman, whether from a friend, a brother, a relative, or even any female. I think this thing worked for Joseph probably. Um, Let's go to the next slide. The last one is uh, magic layman's. Uh, These are parchments and what would happen is They would carry these in a pouch like this and you saw the the pouch in the in the previous uh, slide that Rebecca had, but he'd carry a parchment and this parchment would have drawings on it and these are these are the three uh, parchments that that, that the Smith family had. You'll and and as we go through these I want you to 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 focus on how these might tie into the temple uh, because you'll see elements of the temple show up in these parchments. Um, The first one is Called the Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah parchment. And the reason it's called that, if you look at it closely, you'll see the name Jehovah repeated three times multiple places in this parchment. The purpose of this parchment was it was an it was a, a, a amulet to uh, protect against evil spirits. So someone would wear it to protect against evil spirits. Uh, of course, repeating the name of deity three times is a very popular thing in, in temple ordinances. The other one is St. Peter, bind them. Again, St. Peter and the binding power is another uh, temple uh, idea that that we see there. And the, the purpose of this one was to protect its owner from supernatural beings. And the last one uh, is, the, is the holiness to the Lord parchment. And this is the holiness to the Lord parchment. And if you notice uh, on it, you can see um, some of the symbols that I talked about. I'm trying to point to these. Uh, but uh, you'll notice like right here, this looks like the circle that we saw earlier for the treasure digging. You notice the signs on the end of, this, of the post. These these were known as earth, uh, earth symbols. And then in addition, uh, there, there's a lot of symbolism on here. A lot of them come from different occult books so they can kind of track where these came from. The middle one is the Star of Raphael. This was used to call upon uh, a, a, an archangel or, or an angel. And then uh, down here in the corner is, uh, this is called a tetragrammon. It has the name Adonai in it, which is was needed to call upon a treasure, uh, uh, a treasure guardian. And you can't see it in the picture behind me, but on the picture here, you'll see four stars in each of the corners, uh, four pentagrams. Pentagrams were required in order to call to call a supernatural being in. And so these were all parchments that uh, that uh, Joseph Smith had, or the Smith family had and owned. The church owns them currently, and nobody's allowed to see them. Uh, not sure why. These were copies of these were made in the 70s when they still belonged to the uh, uh, patriarch. But since the church now has them, and, and we have no real good photographs of them, that's why they're so uh, so poorly detailed in this. Okay, let's go to the next one. So let's let's move on to uh, to uh, the story here. We all know it. We all haven't seen the official narrative. We all know what happened here. Joseph Smith, 1805, born in Sharon, Vermont, 1820, we hear the humble boy who prays to know what church is true because of all of the different uh, denominations that were out preaching in in his neighborhood, and he was confused, didn't know which church to join. Uh, As an answer to his prayer, God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him, and they told him that he's to join none of the churches, but there'd be a special uh, calling for him to, to to move forth and to go forward, and that he would know in due time what that was. 1823, he's visited by the angel Moroni, who tells him of the buried gold plates that he will bring forth into the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith isn't allowed to see these. Um, at, at, he's, not, he's not allowed to receive these at this time. He has to wait four years, but every year he goes back uh, to the uh, to the same place to meet with the angel, and to uh, get updates until he's finally, in 1827, he's allowed to receive the plates. Um, he receives the plates, they translate them, they lose 116 pages. And then uh, in, in 18, uh, they, they take the, the plates or taken away from him for a season, and then finally given back to him in 1829. In 1829, the Book of Mormon is translated. And uh, in 1830, the Book of Mormon is finally published and the church is established. That's the story that we all grew up on. That's the story that we all love and know. The problem is it didn't happen anywhere close to this. What we're going to do is we're going to look at how did it really happen or what really happened with the magical components behind it. And I got to tell you, this gets really strange. You can't make some of this stuff up. It it gets really strange. (laughs) So... First off, um, Joseph Smith, 1805, he's called of God. Uh, he's called of God right from his birth. You can see in this picture, this is called a, a call. This is when a baby's born with part of the placenta over their face. And uh, in, in magical worldview, that's an important thing. If you're born with a call, it means you're either going to be a great sailor because you can't, be, you can't drown, or you're going to be a great seer and you're going to have great psychic powers. Well, for a treasure digger like Joseph Smith Sr., this was incredible. This was incredibly good luck. He had a seer as a son. And in a letter to uh, to the Vermonters, that some Vermonters wrote to Joseph Smith Jr., they described what his father said when he was born. He said, you was old enough when you left here to remember a great many things about him and how he used to tell about your being born with a veil over your face, and that he intended to procure a stone for you to see all over the world with. So Joseph Smith Sr. intended to get a seer stone for Joseph Smith Jr. from the very time that he was born. And he, pre- he predicted him to be a seer right from the beginning, right from his birth. Joseph Smith was born and raised to be a seer. The next slide. So this is a uh, preparation for, uh, for becoming folk, uh, for, be- for getting uh, to the point where he became a prophet. In, uh, in rolling, rough stone rolling, Bushman actually calls it the preparatory priesthood. He actually calls all of this magical training the preparatory priesthood. It was in it was to prepare Joseph to receive the uh, uh, to receive this power and this great uh, calling that he had, and to do it, he used magic to prepare him for it. Um, from his youth, he, as we said, he started using a divining rod from when he uh, at age thir- uh, eleven to thirteen. And by age 14, he had obtained a seer stone. Uh, at about this very same time, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. and his older sons began operation of a group of money diggers. And Alvin, the older brother, was reportedly the, uh, the leader of this group, this money digging group. And there's a very cool story about a guy named Lumen Walters that most of us have probably never even heard of. Um, but he's one of the great figures in church history that you've never heard of. So Lumen Walters was an eccentric uh, physician who actually came from a fairly wealthy family. He moved to uh, Europe. And while he was in Europe, uh, he, he practiced medicine, but he also learned the occult. And he learned very, uh, he learned to speak Latin. He learned all of the occult practices. And uh, after he came back from Europe, he, he moved into the Palmyra area. Between 1819 and 1822 is when he moved in and he became known as the village magician. And if you lost a cow, you lost a horse, you'd go to him and he'd tell you where it was at. Well, he also was a leader of treasure digs. He was a scryer, he could look in his hat, he had a seer stone, he could see where the treasure was. Young Joseph would go out on these treasure digs with his father and he would see uh, Walter the magician uh, doing these these, uh, treasure digs. And one of the things he did is, he, he started to learn from him how to do this. And Lumen Walters found a book. It was a book that was in a reformed language. It was actually old Latin. And he would read the book to, to them as they would dig. And then he'd translate it. And he would tell them about a, a story about ancient American people who lived on the continent. And this was the manuscript that he would read as they would dig, the, dig for these treasures. Uh, Lumen actually took Joseph kind of under his wing and mentored him into becoming a seer. And one, one day they're in a, uh, they, they started digging uh, in Abner Cole's property. Uh, he led a treasure dig, and this is where they really got to, to know each other. But later on, they moved and they started digging in a specific spot that was rumored to have treasure. And that specific spot was what we now call the Hill Cumorah. They started digging in the Hill Camorra for treasure in about 1822, and they couldn't find anything. One day in a tavern, uh, Lumen Walters said, geez, I just can't find anything, but there's one in here who can, and pointed to Joseph Smith. And at that point, Joseph Smith kind of had his calling that he was going to be uh, the new magician in Palmyra. Um, Lumen Walters had a, a stuffed toad uh, he doing incantations. He's also probably the person who created the parchments that we saw. He had the knowledge. He had the occult knowledge to draw those to make them. And uh, and and so many people think that he's the the person who drew those lumens. Uh, interesting enough, his name when he was in Vermont, he went under the name Layman, and he also had an uncle whose name was Lemuel. So if you learn nothing else today. It's probably that Nephi and Lehi's last name is probably Walters. Yeah, so something you can learn. (laughs) So uh, after he left uh, Palmyra and he kept coming back, he moved to a place called Sodas. He kept coming back to Palmyra, but uh, uh, when he left, Joseph became known kind of as the village magician and people started going to him. And this was kind of the launch of his, uh, his treasure digging and where people started to come to him. Go to the next slide. So treasure digging years. Uh, over over the uh, length of the time that he did treasure digging, one thing needs to be understood. This was their primary job. The family were treasure diggers. They did other things to make money. They did not farm. You see that in all the church things, their farms always folded because they never grew anything. They were always out doing these treasure digs and they never made any money at it. So they were poor as dirt. so you can kind of see here that basically they started treasure digging. He started around 1819 probably, and the treasure digs continued on to 1828, which is quite fascinating because 1827 is when he got the plates and he's still treasure digging after he got the plates. But one interesting thing in here is, is that uh, uh, he began treasure digging at the Hill Cumorra in 1822, and they were still treasure digging right up till 1827 on the Hill Cumorra even after the angel had came and told him that this was gonna, that there were uh, plates there, he continued to look for them uh, and, and dig them up. So let's go to the next. Uh, what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna, uh, this is just some of the treasure digs that he did. The, he, he participated in at least 18 treasure digs over the, the time that he was treasure digging. Um, let's go to the next one. Uh, so now we get to the, the visit from the angel. And this one is, is really fascinating, the, the uh, visit of the angel. This is one that I think is is very difficult to to pinpoint. Uh, And you might say, why are you starting with the visit from the angel? Why not start with the first vision? Well, firstly, because we know absolutely nothing about uh, a first vision. There's nothing written about it. He doesn't record it. No one in his family records it. Nobody hears anything until 1832. Um, I talked to Melanokis, who wrote uh, Counterfeiting, and asked her about this. And she said, well, they were such liars, you can't believe anything they said. She didn't believe that there was even the angel, a- angel visit in, in September of 1823. So I started looking into that, and I said, eh, I, I don't know if I agree with that, because there's a difference here. In 1820, he couldn't tell you when he saw God the Father and Jesus Christ. Can't tell you when the first vision happened. But he tells you exactly when the angel thing happened. It happened on September 21st, 1823, as he was praying at 11 p.m. at night. We know exactly when this happened. So I believe something happened in this time frame. Did it happen the way he said? I don't think so. Some of this is gonna be supposition, but I'll tell you where, where the facts are and where I back it up. Many people believe that the visit from the angel in September 21st, 1823 was actually the first vision. All of the prophets that refer back keep referring to an angel that visited him and not God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to share something with you here in just a second, um, but uh, Melinda, you want to go to the next next slide? I want to tell you uh, why I, I think this uh, happened, or at least why he thinks it happened. We go back to the layman that we discussed. This layman was probably prepared in September of 1823 because it had to be pre- Prepared at a very specific time. You could only prepare the layman's when certain stars were in certain places and September of 1823 was one of those time periods. Um, additionally, the purpose of this was to call upon supernatural beings and was to help people in locating uh, uh, a treasure. If you remember, Joseph Smith was digging on the, on the Hill Cumorah uh, all the time during this. September 21st, 1823, we know he was on the Hill Gomorrah doing a treasure dig. He supposedly that night is when he had the division from the angel. And that would be the most propitious time for a divine visitation was during a full moon at the autumnal equinox on a day ruled by Jupiter, which was Sunday, which is the day this was, uh, with Joseph Smith's ruling planet ruling the sky, which would have been at 11 p.m. So the exact time that he said that he was praying was the exact time that he should have been seeking a treasure guardian to come and show him where that treasure was on that hill. He claims that a messenger appeared three times during the night to him, which is important because in folklore magic, a dream dream three times was going to come true. Um, also the parchment had two sills on it, those round sills that we talked about, which are earth symbols. They guaranteed that once the, the treasure angel appeared to you, that you would engage to bring him the most precious of their jewels and riches within 24 hours. So within 24 hours, he was gonna be shown where this treasure was. And we all know that's exactly what happened when the angel came the next day, he went to the, uh, to the site. Now, um, I wanna to read to you, This is uh, I, I came across this just yesterday and this is William Smith. This is what he said. This is his version of the, of the first vision. And and I want you to capture a couple things on here. Uh, Think about what he says here. He describes the first vision. This is about, uh, he was 70 years old, but he would have been Joseph's younger brother. Uh, But the family was actually involved in this. He says, while engaged in prayer, a light appeared in the heavens and descended until it rested upon the trees where he, Joseph Smith Jr. was. It appeared like fire, but to his great astonishment did not burn the trees. An angel then appeared to him and conversed with him upon many things. He told him that none of the sects were right, but that if he was faithful in keeping the commandments, he should receive the true way should be made known to him, that his sins were forgiven, etc. A more elaborate and accurate description of his vision, however, will be found in his own history. Now, this is the important part. The next day, the angel again appeared to him and told him to call his father's house together and communicate to them the visions he had received, which he had not yet told to anyone. After we were all gathered, he arose and told that how did the angel appear to him? what he had told him as written above, and that the angel had also given him a short account of the inhabitants who formerly resided upon the continent, a full history of whom he said was engraved on some plates which were hidden and which the angel promised to show him. All of us therefore believed him and anxiously awaited the result of his visit to the hill Gomorrah in search of the plates containing the record of which the angel told him. So his account of the first vision says that the first vision happened the day before he went and got the plates, and he's he's describing it as he was out in the trees. I believe he saw this vision when he was out treasure hunting that night uh, on the Hill Camorra looking for these, uh, for these plates that he saw this vision. Then he went home, told all of his brothers who were a treasure digging family. They were all excited. We're gonna get the treasure. We know where it is. And the whole family was now engaged actively in pursuing and getting these plates. Um, can't prove it, but there's a lot of, lot of history there that says that, that, that that's what's happening. So let's go to the next uh, the next one, Melinda. This is the fascinating story. So uh, we get to the we get to the story where um, uh, Joseph goes up to get to get the plates for the first time, and uh, <laughs> this story is just crazy. He goes up there, and uh, in the in in 1827, uh, he told uh, Willard Chase what happened. Uh, this was Joseph Smith Senior re- recounting what happened. He said that some years ago, a spirit had appeared to Joseph, his son, in a vision and informed him that a certain place there was a record on plates of gold and that he was the person that must obtain them. And this he must do in the following manner. On the 22nd of September, he must repair to the place where was deposited the manuscript, dressed in black clothes and riding a black horse with a switch tail and demand that the book in a certain name. And after obtaining it, he must go directly away and either lay it down or look behind him. So they got Joseph all dressed up in his black clothes and he got up there um, and he was able to, to find the book. And uh, he took, took the book out and he turned and laid it to the side um, so that uh, uh, he could put the lid back on this box that he said he found. And he says that he again opened the box. At, at, well, when he, when he turned around the plates had disappeared uh, again. So he turned back to the box and he says, as he again opened the box and in it, he saw the book and attempted to take it out, but was hindered. He saw in the box something like a toad, which soon assumed the appearance of a man. So there's a toad in the box, which is folklore magic that a treasure guardian often appears in the shape of, a, um, of an animal. And so this is an animal protecting the, the treasure, which is just ridiculous because we all know that people and animals don't trans, transmute in between each other and just turn from one thing to another. So in, in the end, he, he gets a, a, a toad and he, uh, the toad, uh, he tries to take the plates and the toad takes him and strikes him on the side of the head, knocks him out. Not being discouraged at trifles, he again stooped down and strove to take the book when the spirit struck him again and knocked him three or four rods and hurt him prodigiously. After recovering from his fright, he inquired why he could not obtain the plates to which the spirit made reply, because you have not obeyed your orders. He then inquired when he could have them and was answered thus, come one year from this day and bring with you your oldest brother and you shall have them. This spirit, he said, was the spirit of the prophet who wrote this book. So this toad was Moroni. <laughs> the toad turned into a man, Moroni, who started boxing him and knocked him to the ground and then told him, next year you'll get him, bring your brother Alvin. And so that's what he does, he goes home, he gets Alvin and uh, tells tells the family as we just read here all about his experience. So the family's excited, they're gonna go and they're gonna get to go and see, um, uh, they're gonna get to go and find this treasure. Well, there's a problem, Alvin dies two months later. Um, Let's go to the next slide. So the next year he's supposed to go and get the slides, but there's a problem, Alvin's dead. What do you do when Alvin's dead? How do you get him there? Well, the family kind of goes back and forth. What do we do? How do we get him? Uh, So the time comes for him to go up to to visit with the angel again, and they they don't have any way to get it. But when Alvin died, the last thing he said, if, if you remember your LDS history is, oh, get the plates, whatever the cost, make sure you reveal this. I think he really said, make sure you get the plate, get the treasure. You got to get the treasure. You know, this is the family business. This is what they've done, whatever the cost. Well, so the family, um, no, no definite, uh, known that they did this, but they seem to have dug up Alvin. They either dug him up to take part of his body and bring it there, or they took Alvin's whole body and brought it there. Now, uh, the the church claims, no, they never took him there. And, and uh, the, the, the interesting part is here on the right, you see that Joseph Smith Sr. took out an ad in the local paper trying to explain that they had not dug up nor dismembered their son and that it was just wicked rumors that they had dug up their son. And in order to prove it, they dug up Alvin to show that he was still in the grave. And then they reburied him, posted this on September 25th and said, Nope, Alvin was in there, we checked, we know he's there. Well, that's certainly convenient that it happened exactly at the same time that he was supposed to show up on September 22nd at 2 a.m. in the morning. They bring him back the 23rd, they bury him again. Now the ground's been disturbed. Everyone can see the ground's been disturbed. There's rumors that they dug him up. So their answer is no, no, no. We dug him up to make sure he was there because you guys started all these rumors. I mean, how crazy is it to post in the newspaper that you didn't dig up your son something happened there that led to this uh but that's uh that's what happened and so now it didn't work they brought alvin the angel said try again next year okay go the next one so the next year uh he comes back and once one thing that happened in 1824 that we need to understand is this is the first time there's a revival in palmyra uh recorded uh uh, thing. So Palmyra starts getting hit in 1824 by this religious revivalism. So that starts in 24. He's already on this path. 1825, he, he decides Samuel Lawrence is the right guy to bring. Another name most of us don't know. Samuel Lawrence was another seer. Um, and so uh, Joseph takes, takes him out and he shows him where the plates are. And the two take their hats, they take their stones and they start looking into the ground and they start comparing as seers would tend to do. And he says, oh, do you see him? And of course, you, you're the other seer. You got to say, yeah, yeah, I see him. And he says, oh, yeah, I see him. Oh, do you see anything with the, with the plates? And Joseph goes, no, I don't see anything else with the plates. He goes, oh, oh, look again. So Joseph takes out the plates. He looks again. And lo and behold, uh, he can't see anything. And so Samuel Lawrence says, oh, no, no, there's some spectacles with the plates. Don't you see the spectacles? So Joseph looks again, and this time he says, oh, oh, I can see the spectacles, and so this is where the the spectacles come into the whole story. They weren't there when he went there the first time and took him out with the toad, but now they appear there because him and Samuel Lawrence are are comparing stones and decide that uh, one of them is better than the other. After that, Joseph said, "Ah, this Samuel Lawrence is the wrong guy. Uh, Get rid of him. I got to find somebody else, so Go to the next one. 1826, 1825. He meets the girls of his dreams. He goes on a treasure hunt. He's he's hired by uh, Isaac Hale. Goes and gets the tre. Goes and searches for a treasure. He lives with uh, with Isaac Hale, and through Samuel Lawrence, he meets uh, he meets uh, Lucy Hale. Um, they dig. They don't find anything, of course, and he leaves. Uh, go to the next one. So the next the next year. Uh, from the time that he leaves, uh, he went to do that treasure hunt with uh, Josiah Stoll. And in 1826, something important happens. Uh, Josiah Stoll's nephew takes him to court and says, this guy is a fraud and he's stealing all the money from my uncle. And so Joseph goes to trial. At this time, he had about 18 treasure digs and he goes to trial. The church tried to say this trial never happened, but they've now found the receipts. you can see up in the left-hand corner of the, of the trial and they've also found transcripts of the trial. Now to give you an idea of what these treasure hunts look like, you see on the left, those, those holes. This is actually one that the Smiths dug. This was on Miner's Hill when they were looking for gold furniture. And so these are big holes that they're digging, uh, but that people would, they tell them treasure's on your land and you can, we'll dig it, we'll find it and then we'll split it with you. You just need to pay the cost to, to, to find it. And so they take these people for money when they did this. Um, interesting enough, he's, he's basically, it's, it's clear that he's done this. Uh, he's considered a disorderly person for juggling. And at the trial, Joseph Smith Jr. Testified and he said, both he and his son were mortified that this wonderful power, which God had so miraculously given him should be used only in search of filthy lucre. He said his constant prayer to his heavenly father was to manifest his will concerning this marvelous power. He trusted that the son of righteousness would someday illumine the heart of the boy enable him to see his will concerning him. Well, the court found him guilty and they let him go on what's called leg bail, which is basically get out of town and we won't press any charges. We won't put you in jail, but never come back. If you come back, we're going to put you in jail. Well, this scared Joseph because now he's convicted. He sees that he can't continue on as a treasure digger because everyone's starting to realize that the con's up. He's been in all these different places. People know they're conning him. And so at this point, this is a key turning point, this trial, everything changes in 1826. Um, Go to the next slide. First thing happens in 1826, in September, William Morgan disappears. If you remember, William Morgan is the Masonic person. So at this time, you've got a religious revival going on and all of a sudden you get this political divide with the Masons and the anti-Masons. So the anti-Masons, Uh, movement starts to begin. And so you've got, at this very time that this is happening, you've got a religious movement and a political movement happening, and Joseph Smith takes advantage of this. Uh, He he goes to the hill in 1826, he says, and the treasure angel tells him he must do right or never get the plates. He's got one more chance. So he looks in his stones and he sees that Miss Wright is Emma Hell and that he must marry her. And so at this time he starts transforming himself from treasure digger seer to what if we start a church? You saw on the slide that, that uh, Rebecca showed all those churches that were forming. And he get, they get this idea, let's start a church. Um, and at this time, he starts transforming himself. So part of that is I got to get a woman, I got to get a, a bride, I've got to look legit. And so he has to go and marry someone. So he goes down and he visits, uh, he tries to get um uh Emma to be his bride, but his, her father keeps re- refusing. Evidently in the year, he's recognized that he's a sham and he, he doesn't like Joseph. But in 1827, Emma gets invited to Samuel Lawrence's place, the other seer, who's also looking for this treasure. And uh, he convinces her to elope with Joseph, which they do, and they elope and they're married, and uh, they're off on business. So now he's got his bride, he's got the person he sure has to get the plates, it's time to get the plates, 1827. Uh, let's go to that. So what's wrong with this picture? Um, Joseph and Emma departed on September 22nd at 2 a.m. because that's the time that you have to go and get these treasures is it, in the middle of the night. Again, they were, were all dressed in black. They had a black buggy and a black horse. They took this from Josiah Stoll, who was staying with the Smiths, who was in the area because he was treasure digging on that very same hill that night and had come to stay at the house, and then they took his horse and went and got the the treasure. Um, Also, Lumen Walters had been looking for the treasure on the same hill just days previously. He'd been out digging, uh, uh, Brigham Young tells us that. He fulfilled every requirement that he had to to get the treasure in 1827, and we're told that he met the angel and that the angel gave him the plates, sort of. If you remember, He didn't come back with the plates. He put the plates in a hollow log. He came back and said, oh yeah, I've got the plates. They're in a hollow log. Don't worry, Emma, I've got them. Um, I can look in my hat and see that they're safe. So he puts them in a hollow log and he comes back later to get them uh, when he's by himself. Uh, Vogel thinks that uh, he hadn't finished making the plates, the the pseudo plates that he was going to use to fool everybody, and that he was trying to finish that up. And when he did, he dislocated his thumb. And that's why you get the story about him running back with the plates and everybody knocking him down and he had to run away with the plates and there was a big fight. And that's how he justified that he dislocated his thumb. Interesting theory, don't know if it's true, but uh, at some point later, he got the plates and he brings them. Okay, go to the next, next slide. And so now we go to the translation process and here's our uh, beloved leader, President Nelson, telling us how this process worked, which may be different than you've heard before. Oh, Melinda, your audio isn't working. Probably when you reshared, your audio went out. Um, we'll, we'll go away from that. But basically what he said is, um, he says, again, that Joseph, it, it's kind of funny because he puts the hat up to his face and he said, oh yeah, Joseph used a stone. The Book of Mormon is mainly sitting here on the, on the side and you can see it in the video. It's wrapped in a cloth. You can't see the plates. They're hidden all the time. And he's translating with his head in a hat. Uh, looking at these uh at these items and he acts like it's perfectly normal and that everybody knew this story the whole time it's just amazing as he tells the story like oh yeah you should know that and the lady just sits and nods and goes yes president yes that's so true uh it, it just I it's just it fixed if you want me to try the what I do have it fixed now if you want me to okay go to ahead it. play it this really through the gift and power of God we have a lot of suggestions about how it was done. We know that they had a table like this. We know they had the golden plates covered, usually, and Joseph used these uh, deurim and thummim, seer stones in, in the hat, and it was easier for him to see the light when he uh, take that position. To me, it's like having my mobile phone at my hand and, and I can get messages on it that you can't see. That's true. Uh, and they had nothing like that. So it's just the gift and power of God. So there you have it. Uh, just That's the story as I grew up with it. I don't know about you guys, <laughs> but that's the story. So, um, so I'm, I've got two more things. I know we're running over time because of our problems earlier. So, uh, I want to just cover two two last things here. Um, The the Book of Mormon's translated. He takes it to the printer. And then there's this interesting story about this guy named Abner Cole. And Abner Cole is the one that they did the treasure dig on. And Abner Cole also produces the local newspaper. And so when they take the transcript to be published, he takes it and everyone's reading it. Or the publisher's trying to, and it's written so badly, he can't can't, uh, do it. He has to do all this editing and fixing it. And so he tells Hiram, look, bring, bring me more of them. Bring him, bring him more of them at a time and give me several pages at a time. Then at night, I'll fix them. And then in the morning, we can go ahead and start the printing and we don't waste all this time. So Hiram does this. Well, in the meantime, he leaves some of these at the, at the printer office. And Abner Cole is using the printer office at night to produce his, his newspaper. And so Abner Cole comes in and he's reading this. And he's reading the Book of Mormon. He gets the whole story and he starts publishing it in his newspaper. He publishes it in his newspaper, and all of this happens, and uh, Hiram comes and says, no, 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 you can't do this, and Abner Cole finally gets, says, okay, I won't do this uh, anymore, and he stops producing it, but just after that, he, he writes a, a, a thing called the Book of Puci, and this is a fantastic, it's the first satire of the Book of Mormon, and this is written by Abner Cole, who knows Joseph Smith. He knew Lumen Walters. He knew the Smith family. They dug on his property. He knows these people, and he writes the Book of Pukiai, which uh, still exists, and you can find it uh, uh, in uh, in the BYU library. And because of time, I'm not going to read it. Uh, but if you want to go on on uh, line and look it up, look up the Book of Pukiai because it's it's a great satire. He talks about how uh, these. Uh, Ignoramuses are digging on a hill with Walter the magician and the toads, and he he basically tells the story that is more accurate than the church than the story the church takes when he's actually just doing it in a in a satirical manner. So it's a very funny. Look it up, uh, the book of puki and, and read it. It's only two chapters long. Uh, there's only two chapters to it, but it's it's uh, it's a fun little read. You'll have fun. It's 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 worth the reading and, and laugh at it. Okay, next slide. So the last thing I want to bring up is, um, you know, Joseph and his testimony. We know that he continued to do treasure digs even after he got the the, the, the plates. We also know that they went to, uh, the first whole first presidency at one time went to Salem, Massachusetts, and dug in a basement because someone told them there was a treasure there, and they got a revelation from God saying they'd get the church out of the uh, uh, out of debt if they would go there. They'd find this treasure. Well, they never found the treasure, of course. And then now the church says, well, the treasure was the people. They converted people, and that was the treasure they were going after. But uh, uh, anyway, he continued his treasure digs. But you know, he, after after kind of 1827, you don't hear so much about the folk magic. He becomes more of a religious person, and that all became about because of that those changes. You know, people were becoming more religious. He had to transform himself. He rebranded himself now as a prophet rather than a treasure digger seer. Um, did Joseph Smith ever give up his, uh, his past with this? Uh, the one thing I say is, uh, is I look at Joseph's last testimony and Joseph's last testimony as he, as he went to Carthage. Um, and, and I like to look at actions rather than words. And this is the actions that happened is when, after he burned the Nauvoo uh, Expositor, they were gonna take him to jail. They came to pick him up. They let him get anything he wanted. He got to talk to his people. Uh, He got to check in at a hotel when they went to Carthage. He had all the time in the world. He could do anything he wanted. Um, Here was the prophet of God. He'd received the endowment. He had received the revelation about the endowment and he went off to Carthage. And what did he take with him? Did he wear his temple garments? He did not. What he had on him was his Jupiter talisman. And if you look at the Jupiter talisman, it's interesting to note uh, that on there, there's these words, Um, the words that are, the words that are printed on there are, "confirmo o deus uh, potentissimus, which means make me, O Lord, all powerful. And that is what he had at the time of his death. So I think it was obvious that he relied on the magic to protect him right up till the end as opposed to uh, the priesthoods that he that he supposedly had access to.
0: Well, magically, we are now back in our pedestrian clothes. See, we have magic powers, too, don't we, Landon?
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we do. No, we really hope that you guys um, enjoyed this sort of synopsis and breakdown of this incredible book, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview by the amazing D. Michael Quinn. This was very important for us to do. We had wanted to do it for a long time, and we hope that you learned something. Um, Do you have any takeaway, last thoughts on this, Landon?
1: Uh, Really just uh, how important this magical folk magic was to the early part of the church, and I think we still see it throughout the church today, uh, the many different uh, uh, things that we do all uh, go back to folk magic things like uh, oil uh, consecrating things with oil and stuff was all part of the folk magic uh, tradition so
0: yeah no I think you know the list that we've made so far with practices today and how they harken back to the earlier time in the folk magic that there really are so many parallels and I would say that a lot of things are coming to the forefront now that weren't there before like you routinely hear people talk about the rock and the hat it, it's so common you know 10 years ago, you never heard that. Certainly when we were younger, you you might have been stoned if you talked about a rock and <laughs> a hat. It was not brought up. In fact, Landon and I were at the Family History Center, the Family History Museum on Temple Square about a month ago. And this very nice guide, uh, probably a decade older than we were, just routinely talking about it. And of course, he looked into a hat and used a sear stone. You know, it was just routine for her. Which is different, don't you think, Landon, oh, never from even just, just a few up, years never ago? never heard about
1: mm-hmm. the layman's. I think most people have never heard of the layman's or the Jupiter mm-hmm. talisman, uh, but they, they were certainly a big part of church history.
0: They were. They were. And I think maybe that it's it's you cannot ignore it anymore. I think everyone knows about it. It's everywhere. And that's why I believe the church has now had to try to normalize it, right? Maybe an article in The Children's Friend. Hey, kids, it's a rock and a hat. You know, everyone knows about it. It's in the open. There's a spotlight shown on it. But let's not forget the first spotlight that was shown on it was by D. Michael Quinn um, to great personal sorrow, I think. Don't you think? I mean, he lost a lot. It ruined his career and he lost a lot from it. And the things that are in this book are now we're being told we've always known them it's common knowledge and that is not true so it's very important to read this maybe even read the original edition there's a there's a big gap between the two editions um as michael quinn got more information and corrected some yeah, things so he got anyway, more
1: gold in the second one when the church no longer had a hold over <laughs> him uh yeah he definitely got more bold. Him, yeah
0: <laughs> yeah no it, yes that he was let go from byu and then he was like the gloves are off i'm really because in the first book he tries to be a little diplomatic yeah. about things it's a very faithful i would say approach more and in this one he's like all right i'm gonna tell everybody how it is um and of course he's written many other scholarly and wonderful books so if anybody wants to do a dive into d michael quinn uh, we can't recommend that enough and maybe maybe someday we'll do a treatment of some of his other books too so totally. we'll have to see yep all right well thank you again everybody we will be signing off from mormonish uh until next time thank you Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at Mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, Mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.